everyone, and thank you so much for joining us for this special Navara Media live session straight from the World Transformed Festival. Before we get going, the World Transformed needs urgent support to safeguard its future until the end of 2022. So make sure you head to their website and donate to their fundraiser if you can. Let's get into it. For tonight's session, we are joined by Maurice McLeod, who is Chief Executive of Race on the Agenda and a former journalist. Adam Bienkov, who is Political Editor of Byline Times. And Ava Evans, who is Politics Correspondent for Joe Media. And tonight we will be asking, is political journalism broken? And I just want to start with an audience poll. So raise your hands if you agree with the statement that political journalism is broken. Okay, that's quite a lot of people. Uh, now raise your hands if you don't agree with the statement that political journalism is broken. One lone hand. Um, and raise your hand for anyone who's not sure yet. Okay, cool, tough crowd. Um, so we'll do this again at the end and see if anyone has changed their positions. So that is the question we're gonna be tackling. Is political journalism broken? And I'm going to start with a bit of a rogue question for all of our panel, which is, how did you get into political journalism? What are your paths and backgrounds? Essentially, are you representative of the kind of people who are currently mostly in political journalism? So if we start with Maurice. Um, hello, Maya. Um, so, how did I get? I feel like that's. Uh, uh, I feel like I'm. I'm. I'm being fake in even answering that because I don't feel like I ever got into political journalism. I was. I've never been a lobby journalist. Uh, I was political editor of the Voice. 25 years ago um but even then it didn't feel like we were doing political you know we were sort of accepted as part of the the crew the cohort of, of proper political journalists so um and and, and my background uh, I, I i turned down going to a private school when i was 11 i went to a comprehensive i live on council estates so i did go to university though adam do you want to spill the beans um yeah so I, i'm state educated uh, did a degree in English, decided I wanted to become a, a writer of some sort of journalist. Um, I sort of started in the late noughties, around sort of 2007, um, and back then blogging had become a big thing, so I started up my own blog, covering the Mayor of London, who at the time was someone called Boris Johnson. And um, from that, just started to get a bit of attention. Guardian noticed me and asked me to start writing columns for them, uh, New Statesman as well. And eventually got a job in a lobby job at politics.co.uk, which at the time was um, was the only kind of online outlet in the hold of the lobby. And so it's, it's, the lobby has really changed in, in the 10 years that I've I've been there. It was a very sort of stuffy place. People looked look down their noses at us uh, at that time. Um, it has definitely become more representative over that time, albeit from a very low base. Um, and I've, since then, I've, I, I went to work for Insider as their political editor. And now, uh, last year, I, I moved to Barnard Times. Ava? So I am some state, some private on scholarship. And then in my third year of uni, I got, I started asking around basically for work experience at different radio stations because I loved radio. I was obsessed with it. And I, I got freelance gigs and I basically used to get the 3.50 a.m. train from Brighton. I was at Sussex University 
to London where I would do the LBC breakfast show. I'd come back, write my dissertation in the afternoon and then go off and do a shift at BBC Sussex in the evening and did that for a year. Got this incredible um, wrinkle that's still on my forehead and my mum like hates and constantly brings up. Um, I did that and then at the end of that year, I, I was lucky because I was at third year so I was still able to pay you know pay my way through it just about um I got hired by LBC and I started at Joe last year and I'm their first lobby journalist so we kind of applied on a whim about last maybe in March time we thought like they're not going to give a lobby pass to Joe Media and then they did and we were like oh crap like how sorry <laughs> you can say crap. you can say crap it's Navarro <laughs> okay. it's okay um and then we were like oh my like you know how how do we tackle this and basically the last six months has been us trying to navigate the world of Westminster lobby mm. um and we're going to get onto the lobby and what exactly that means soon but first I just want to ask briefly how do you each define political journalism so and how do you think the outlets you've worked at have maybe defined this have there's has there been a difference for, from the mainstream outlets you've worked at versus the more alternative or independent ones we start with Maurice um so how do I define political journalism I think that I think that's the when, when I looked at the headline of this is political journalism broken the first thing you've got to think is what is political journalism before you can work out if it's broken um it should be the 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 tool that allows the public to know what's going on and make decisions about their lives and be informed about uh, about the changes to society. Um, I, I can only really talk about what it feels like in most mainstream publications, and it feels like a, an offshoot of showbiz. It feels like it's much more about you know personalities and 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 who's been doing what to who rather than ideas and, and, and that sort of thing, which was what I'd like to see. I'd like to see it be about ideas. Mm. Adam? Yeah, so I've always worked for um, online publications or sort of alternative publications. I've never worked for a newspaper, um, or be, apart from freelance work. Um, and it is, it does, there is a sort of different approach, uh, uh, alternative outlets to, uh, I mean, the lobby is, itself is kind of, it is based on access and it is, um, the way to get ahead in lobby journalism is to gain the most access to the government and to use that access to get kind of tidbits of essentially gossip. And it does create a situation where uh, it does become overly focused on the kind of uh, the minutiae of the of how people in government are getting on with each other rather than the the actual issues. And that's that's long been a complaint about lobby journalism, even way back at the beginning of lobby journalism. You can look at articles for, from decades ago where people were complaining that lobby journalists were obsessed with gossip and didn't care about the actual issues. And not really much has changed since then, really. Ava? I think joining the lobby has been probably one of the most eye-opening experiences that I'll, I'll ever see. I think... I, I think because it's so difficult to get a lobby pass, when someone does get that access, they kind of get quite overcome by how easy it is to brush past celebrity it, celebrities. That's brush, an interesting but, slip. But, you know, that, that is that is what, how you know how a lot of people feel about MPs or leaders or secretaries of state. That is, you know, it's what parties can I get invited to? Can I keep my lobby pass? Because that is the worry as well. Every year, you don't know if it's going to expire and you're going to be pushed out of Parliament altogether. But you know. I, I've had two very different experiences from, from working in broadcast journalism and my job was to book 
MPs constantly and book high profile figures all the time and now going into Joe where it's much more focused on the human experience of how do these policies affect people on the ground and the lobby pass is helpful for that because you get the access where you can walk up to MPs and say look I've got someone in Bolton who can't afford to put their heating on what are you doing about it but I I don't think that's the approach for for most people in there. Not to be totally disparaging on the rest of the pack, but I mm. don't I don't think it's the general idea. Mm. Um, Adam, when you worked at Insider, you worked in the House of Press House of Commons press gallery. Yeah, I still do now. Yeah, okay, so yeah. So what does that actually mean? Like, I want to dispel some of the myths of how journalists working from Westminster function. What does it mean to be in the press gallery? What's that day to day look like? Well, there are there are a large group of people in the press gallery, and some people in the press gallery are just there because they. They need the access. They need. To, uh, they can work in TV or, or whatever. They don't. Act, they aren't actually sort of real lobby journalists. But there's a smaller group of people who both have have lobby passes, but also go along to regular lobby briefings. And how that works is on a daily basis, twice daily basis actually. Um, journalists go to Downing Street, uh, number nine Downing Street. It used to be that the case that the meetings were held in Parliament and then Downing Street would have to come to us. But that was changed under Boris Johnson, so now we have to go to them, which was a bit of a battle at the time. And the, the Prime Minister's spokesperson sets out the agenda of the Prime Minister of the day. Um, that's all kind of operational. And then it goes on to questions. And the good thing about it is, is if the government is in trouble... There is a kind of pack mentality where, you know, over Partygate was a good example of that, where you've got 20 to 30 journalists in a room. They're all going looking for inconsistencies, asking questions, and you can get some some good answers. But the sort of downside to it is that because you have that pack mentality, often kind of other stories get missed and get lost. And issues that perhaps matter more to people sometimes get lost, even if that lobby system is very good at getting to the, the nub of the main issue of the day. Mm. Um, Ava, you've touched on this a little bit about lobby passes, what it's supposed to mean versus what it actually means in practice. Have you ever been restricted in your reportage with this lobby pass and political journalism? And how do you think this will impact the stories political journalists might focus on? What a timely question. <laughs> so we're here at Labour Conference. We have been told that we will not be allowed to go to Conservative Conference. We were also not allowed to attend the latter half of the conservative hustings and at the time it was because we were told on a phone call that our coverage wasn't favorable or something something of the like and I, I, I tweeted it and then got a very angry response from CCHQ because obviously that should be a private conversation of we're banning you and restricting your access and no one else should know about it. But anyway, it turns out that quite a few outlets have actually been banned from the, the, the Conservative conference that's going to take place. And essentially what that is, is kind of like a, a hangover, I would say, from the Boris Johnson government, where you were kind of allowed to pick and choose who you were giving information to. And actually, as a journalist, it doesn't really restrict me because I'm not really that interested in like the minutiae of what's going on, you know, between like the prime minister and their spouse. So I don't get those tidbits. But what you can do is you've got more freedom. Like, well, these people already really dislike me and they're not going to give me anything anyway. So I might as well just kind of go full pelt and write whatever I'd like to. Mm. Is this, does this depend on like 
an outlet's political leanings though so if you know if you're working for an outlet that is more favorable to the government is that something that people would do 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 others think that people would go full pelt or would they go in a different direction i just want to say before i hand over the microphone i do think that naturally uh, press printed press is right-leaning so i think if you say anything that goes against the grain of that or you're not typing up exactly the press release that they've given to you then i think you would be seen as kind of like you know to the left or you know not not playing the game correctly i think that's that's kind of where the issue is yeah i mean i think there is this caricature of the of the lobby that um it you know we're all secret tories basically and i don't i genuinely don't think that's the case in reality i mean there are prominent political senior journalists who everybody could name who are staunch staunch conservatives and are very close to the trust administration or the johnson administration but actually probably a I'd say it's more common that people in the lobby are sort of centre left or or left wing. I think that's probably more common. But what you don't find in the lobby really is kind of overtly left wing journalists, or not many, not many. And they, and if if there are any, they don't tend to get to to senior positions. I mean, I, I was in the lobby throughout the the Corbyn period, and although it's very easy to name people who are very close to the Johnson administration, Trust administration, the Theresa May administration, I couldn't really name any senior journalists who were sort of really sort of close in with the the Corbyn uh, cycle. And I think a lot of that is to do with with power because the lobby system incentivizes getting close to power. Corbyn wasn't in power and didn't look like he was likely to get into power. Um, but the the issue of that is it it does mean that the way to get to the top in lobby journalism is to is to is to essentially play into the hands of of power. Um, and if you stray outside of that, if you're too critical, as uh, as you have found, um, you get squeezed out and you you lose the access that you need in order to do your job. Um, and it does also tend to sort of force journalists to to go down the route of kind of gossip and and rather than on the issues because. You know what you're going to do once you get access to that power. You're not going to expose uh, a scandal about the government because that could lose you that access. In fact, I, I was speaking to a, a one lobby journalist recently who said that they were actually asked by their their, their desk to look into some rumours about uh, Liz Truss um, that have been doing the rounds, and actually turned it down, turned down the opportunity because they said uh, if I do that, that will kill off all of my contacts in the government. Um, so that's not even sort of you know shadowy figures from, from, from top telling journalists what to do. It's just a natural fact. I don't actually blame the journalist concerned for that because that's true. If if they did pursue that story, they probably would lose a lot of their access mm. and their career and their position would be threatened. Mm. I want to move actually and ask Maurice, Maurice a different question, which is: Do you think mainstream media is too tied to an understanding of political journalism as meaning Westminster coverage and? How does this shape what the public sees as political? Who's being missed by that? Mm. Absolutely, yes. I think that the... I mean, I think it's fascinating what happens in the lobby, but that ends up being everything. And as uh, publications have cut their their other journalists, they they might not have a trades expert anymore. They might not have local experts. All politics comes from Westminster. And and what I find... I mean, I'm a local councillor as well. And when I knock on doors... uh, um, and then, you know, say, hey, are you going to come and vote for Labour or whatever? Then, oh, I'm not interested in politics. And what they mean is they're not interested in Westminster. And I sort of say, so you don't care about your kid's school. You don't care about safety on your streets. You don't care. And of course they do. So so the idea of what politics is very much gets changed to be about this sort of football match between red and blue. And if you're not involved in that, you just sort of switch off. Mm. Speaking about that, that, that local... Um 
sort of network, I, I want to just read a quote to the whole panel, which was written actually by your colleague, Adam Sam Bright, for a Navarra Media piece, which was, the demise of local and specialist reporters has resulted in the lobby leading on all matters relating to politics and policy. Trapped in Westminster, spread too thinly to have any specialist policy expertise, political psychodramas are the major currency. Is that accurate in any of your opinions? Um, and how does the lack of strong regional networks works impact where and what political reporting is focused on and how can we address this anyone who wants to pick yeah, this up so, so, so when, I, when I first joined the lobby there was a strong presence of regional lobby journalists and actually in the room that I the office that I'm based in it was sort of half of it was regional lobby journalists and because of the way the industry has gone most of those are no longer based there's very few and there's almost no regional journalists left in the lobby um, and there also was used to be a tradition of industrial correspondence in newspapers, which is almost entirely gone. And we're now going into a, a, an era when there's, when there's a huge amount of industrial disputes and there just isn't the specialist knowledge in political journalism to, to cover that properly. And, you know, it does lead to a kind of superficial coverage of, of these really important issues for people. Does anyone else want to pick that up? Uh, the, the one other thing is, sorry, you said um, who gets left out. And I, I very much think... Um, if you're, uh, so obviously mo most of my, a lot of my work's been about anti-racism and it feels like if that's not a hot topic, if that's not a dividing thing between Tories and, and Labour, it kind of gets missed out. So there'll be loads of, uh, I think really important, uh, issues around racism or, 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 you know, stop and search, all that sort of stuff happening. And it just doesn't feel like it gets sort of picked up unless you go to sort of specialist newspapers or, or Navarra or that sort of place. Mm. Ava, did you have anything to add? I mean, we, we are too small to have a regional journalist, but we, Ed is in the audience, who's one of our team members, and he travels all over the country, as do I, as do Ollie, just basically trying to pick up stories that don't actually make national press anymore because there's no one to report them. Mm. And talk, pick up on this other point about sort of representation. Maurice, why is political journalism so to generalise, white, male and middle class. So what is it about this particular strand of media that sees so few journalists of colour, particularly ones from low-income backgrounds, you know, attain the likes of either a lobby pass, a staff role, anything, even in alternative media like Navarra, we're really falling short when it comes to non-white politics correspondence. And what would it take to create a truly diverse and representative in terms of ethnicity, class, gender, disability, group, of political journalists yeah so so um you know why is is lobby journalism so so white and middle class um why is why are most uh, um um elements of our establishment so white and middle class so that so the filters that that work across media that we've just been talking about you know they they work even more if you're coming from a working class background i mean i came uh, it took me when i decided i wanted to be a journalist it took me three years to even get on a course that, you know, I got on the city course eventually, but it took me three years to get on that because I, no, I had no idea what the start was and it was before the sort of, you couldn't just blog or, or, or sort of do your own content. Um, so I think when you've got all those filters in place and, and you know, the more um, elite, and I guess you could call lobby journalists elite because you've got to, you know, you, you jump through all those hurdles. Uh, each of those hurdles, black and working class and women, I would imagine, get, get taken out so that you end up with mm with those most able to 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 succeed so like most other bits of sort of british establishment that's that's what i say i don't think it's anything specific 
I, I really don't. I think that it's 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 the sort of filters that apply to much of society. I mean, it's it's quite interesting what's actually, what has happened to the kind of representation in the lobby since in the ten years I've mm. been there. When I arrived, it was overwhelmingly male, uh, white, and middle class, and it's, it still is largely. But it has become, particularly in the last few years, uh, there has become uh, somewhat better um, represented ethnically than before. But what I think has gone in the, and also more women as well, mm. uh, and more senior women journalists in, in politics. I think where things have gone in the other direction is in terms of social representation. And the class of people uh, of working in political journalism has definitely um, gone completely um, much less representative than it was than, than I, when I joined. And I'm not in, entirely sure why that is. I think partly it's, it's to do with the short traditional routes of working class people to get into journalism have been cut off. We we're talking about um, industri uh, industrial correspondence and regional correspondence. That was always a traditional route. People working in local papers. That's become much more. Most local papers are closing all across the country, um, and also it's become a kind of uh, political journalism has become a more kind of high status profession in in recent decades, and so it has become more dominated by uh, middle class people at the top and we know from all, all walks of life that people tend to hire people more like themselves and also there is a fair amount of nepotism as well i mean i'm sure we could all think of uh, prominent political journalists who just happen to be the children of other prominent political journalists mm. um and question for all the panel how does ownership impact an outlet's both conception of what political journalism is and what it actually does with the brief it's getting does anyone want to pick that up mm. Um, so I think it's super important. I mean, I, uh, for my sins, I worked on the Express for a while and I, I joined when it was, uh, in theory, it was about to move over to being this left-wing version of the mail and it was going to be life stories and blah, 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 it was going to be really good. And I thought, oh, that sounds cool. And I moved over from the Independent with uh, Rosie Boycott. Um, and then very quickly after Richard Desmond bought the paper and it turned into something else, every time he put Asylum Seekers or Diana or Cancer on the front, Sales shot up, so that's what we wrote about, and, and it was really noticeable. When I when I when I first joined, um, I won't say her name, but I I, I bumped into one of the so, uh, social affairs correspondent crying her eyes out about the stuff that she was being forced to write, and you know, and a bit of you's like, well, don't write it then. Do you know what I mean? Walk out and do something else. But I, I kind of felt I felt for her. So you get squeezed into a place, and I think it's very much down to the owner. You, you could really see that the paper's whole attitude changed when the owner changed. It's tough that because I agree with you. I would say, well, just don't do it. But actually the access, get, getting into political journalism is so difficult and so impossible if you don't have some kind of connection or you don't have any money behind you. Like I was very lucky in that I got into it through doing um producing and was able to sustain myself because I was at university there was no way I remember having a conversation with my parents being like I'd really like to go to city university and then looking at how much it costs and you've got to pay 10 grand up front to take the course and that's essentially the access course that's how anyone gets into political journalism nowadays and who who's got 10 grand so Thinking of that and then imagining some girl who's writing copy for a newspaper and she doesn't particularly like the sway of it, I think it's easy for us to sit here and go, no, you just you, you just shouldn't take part. But actually, if you've got rent to pay and normally these journalists are being paid, like, I'm going to shock you about 24K. Like, it's not, you know, it's not like an extreme amount of money. People are like living month to month. It, it's very difficult to be principled when you need to eat. 
Is that part of why political journalism isn't working though? Because it's that question of being principled or people thinking they need to eat? Well, is it easy to sell our principles? In a word. <laughs> well, I, I, think it, I think it's more complex than that because you've got people like that who were just carrying out writing the copy but then you've also got people who've been afforded the lifestyle and been able to just sort of swan in and enjoy themselves in the life of politics and they're not going to give up this you know it's an incredible experience you get invited to every drinks party you'd ever want to go you get to meet anyone don't want to go to any of those drinks parties well right and that's why we're here tonight and not at that (laughs) other event that's going on um but yeah, I, 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 think it's, I think it's too complex, but in a word, probably yes. Okay. If anyone does want to go to the New Statesman's Drinks, sponsored by Amazon at the Labour Conference, you know where the door is. Um, I was actually still going on political journalism and outlets and ownership. So Byline Times, could you just outline a bit of what Byline Times is for the audiences who might not be aware of exactly where it comes from? Yeah, so we've only been going a, a few years. Um, and the sort of brief of Byline Times is that we write about the stories and issues that other newspapers don't want to or and so we're, we're kind of a we're focused on the idea is that we're we're loyal to our readers rather than the to an owner because we don't have an owner um as such we, we, it's purely based on subscriptions i do think that's quite an exciting development in journalism in, in the last five to ten years outlets like navarra as well which is which is dependent on on subscribers rather than somebody i mean when i work for politics.co.uk uh, for instance, it was actually owned by a Conservative MP uh, when, when I was there. I mean, it was fine because he was standoffish and didn't, didn't actually get involved in it. But, you know, that does have an effect on, on the journalism, undoubtedly. And when I was Insider, it was a massive multinational corporation. And that has pernicious effects on journalism as well. It's not that they're telling you to politically write or be in a certain way, but it's just those commercial pressures are huge. So to actually st- have a an outlet like Byline Times or like Navarra, where you're actually only dependent on your readers and their subscriptions, I think is incre- incredibly empowering. And, and uh, you know, I do hope that those kind of outlets can continue to succeed because I think it really can change the sort of political outlet of journalism. Ava, um, Joe is obviously owned by a hedge fund. Does this have an impact on reporting, Greencastle Capital? I mean, I have to check. I, I think it's a venture capital. Sorry. Yeah. It's a different type of private yeah, no, equity. Fair, yeah. <laughs> So Joe is owned by Greencastle. Politics Joe is an offshoot of that. And we don't have adverts on any of our content apart from when we post things to YouTube or Twitter. And then actually, no, it wouldn't be Twitter, sorry. YouTube and then adverts get assigned to us. So we don't actually have anything to do with. So the, but there's, what I'm saying is there's no sort of like top down. No one has ever. No atmosphere to me. of. No, yeah, no. I, um, no one has ever spoken to me about what content I can and cannot publish here however i have previously been at (laughs) places where we couldn't do certain content because of commercial obligations we had so perhaps there might be one very large bank that got into trouble that we weren't allowed to talk we weren't allowed allowed to talk about the Uyghur crisis basically because of this bank that um had well shares in that crisis and there were betting firms as well there were issues with that we weren't allowed to talk about gambling or you know problematic gambling because because coming up in that ad break would be and you know betfair for example um try you know we couldn't yeah i thought it was interesting earlier when we were talking about this idea of i guess individual responsibility as a political journalist so i want to come back to that question of Ava, you were like, you know, it's a choice between um, sticking to your principles or making it. And 
should we be putting more of an onus, more of a pressure on journalists to actually report these stories? Or is that just a fighting a losing battle and we should be focusing on these wider systems? Or should, is there a bit in the middle that we can kind of be tackling? I don't know, does anyone have thoughts on this initially? Because journalists get very angry when you say maybe you just didn't have to do that thing. <laughs> so, so, so sorry, is your question... Uh, my question is if someone's working for a paper and they're saying this is my only way to get into the business and I have to write these things even though I don't agree with them, should we be putting more sort of onus on people to say, well, actually, that's not the only choice, but then is that going to freeze more people out of journalism? Yeah, I, I think that's a valid question. When I, when, I was, um, when I was coming up, when I was working on The Voice, actually, and, uh, you know, um, for, for those who don't know, The Voice is um, uh, Britain's black newspaper, but yeah, we were very lowly paid, so the aim was to get onto Fleet Street. Um, and I remember Sunday Times called me, I'd done some stuff with them, and they said, oh, we've got this story that... Um, uh, that black people are buying bushmeat, which is like um, wild animals, like monkeys and stuff like that. And they're buying it from Brixton Market. Can you go down and buy some? Uh, and 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 obviously I said, don't be ridiculous. That's a ridiculously racist story. There's no way I'm covering that. And, and, and the response was, do you ever want to work at the Sunday Times? Because this will be the last time I speak to you if you don't take this job. And I didn't take it. And I've never, I don't think I've ever worked for Sunday Times again. But I was... You know, I had a job. I was at The Voice. I, you know, I did. It wasn't a, you know, this will be it for you. You won't work again. Um, I'd like to think, I mean, I get you get into journalism, hopefully, because you have some thoughts and you have some, you know, some principles that you want to, to share. I'd like to think I would always make that decision, but I wouldn't blame anyone that, that goes, I wouldn't blame anyone too harshly who, who, who goes with their pocket rather than their principles. Um, I also want to say, because political journalism is so focused on Westminster coverage, it's actually quite difficult to get audiences interested in the stories that fall outside of that sometimes. I've noticed on Navarra, you know, we'll, we'll do journalism that focuses on other types of politics, but it won't get as much lead readership as when you're writing something about Labour. And we're not solely driven by views, so of course we're going to cover various things. But how can political journalists who want to cover these other stories and maybe working for these small outlets that don't have as much funding, how can they make audiences interested in a wider definition of what polit political journalism can be? Well, yeah, I mean, this is this is a big problem. And it's actually been made worse by the kind of, um, by the digital era, where we can, act, where now we actually know what people are, are reading because we can see what they're, they're clicking on, whereas that wasn't case for the vast majority of journalism's history where people did actually you know they did have all of these correspondents in different countries because nobody really knew what was selling the papers um now it's very easy for publications to see exactly what is selling the papers and often it is you know let's be honest often it is a political gossip people are interested in it but that isn't a reason not to, to cover the other stories. Um, you need to have a well-rounded product as a news organisation, and that includes covering important stories as well as those that are at the top of the traffic leaderboards. Mm. Ava, obviously, because Joe gets m so many views on the kind of content you make, what's your kind of take on this? How do you decide what things... You said that you go around the country looking for these stories that the other places aren't covering. How do you, how do you focus, laser in on those? How do you find those? And what happens if they don't perform in order with the metrics? I think it kind of depends what you define by perform. Mm. So if you've got like, we'll do like a couple of really big interviews for that month and that will hit our, like, look, I'm going to be really transparent with you. You need to hit numbers and you need to make money in some capacity. If we do a couple of big interviews, 
our YouTube will cover us for the rest of the month and then we'll be allowed to cover other things. I don't really think there's kind of like rhyme or reason. I think it's sort of like what we're interested in. And I also think it's how you use social media. So the algorithm will work against you. And what I mean by that is that when you're talking about political gossip does really well, it's because it'll be trending that day. And so then your pieces will be put on more people's timelines and you'll get more clicks. But actually, if you kind of have a, a good strategy of sort of like, I was going to give it all away then. <laughs> I was going to give it all away. No, I don't know. Honestly, I don't think we have rhyme or reason. I think we have interest in something and then we try to hook it onto a bigger topic. Mm, okay. Um, Maurice, you've worked as a journalist and now you're a politician. So you've seen both sides. How do you think that relationship between politicians and media operates? And how does each side view the other? And is there a revolving door between the two? Okay. Uh... Yeah, there's a lot of questions there. So, so um, um, the uh, I'm yeah, I'm a politician. I'm a local councillor. That's you know, no one's no one's papping me going to the shops or anything like that. So I'm, I'm not that sort of person. So I guess um, and 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 I'm uh, I'm, I'm a councillor in Wandsworth. So we've just taken the council for the first time to Labour, first time in 44 years from the Tories. So my political engagement on you know has moved from trying to encourage you know, my former friends in journalism to cover this awful stuff that's happening in Wandsworth to now fearing that my friends might cover anything bad that happens in Wandsworth. So, I mean, so I've got the concern that that, that maybe, um, uh, whereas before, I, yeah, the, the journalism, journalists were a tool for me showing up, you know, a bad administration. <laughs> now I'm worried about, you know, any mistakes we make being being called out. So that's, so that's sort of different. Um, there was a second part. Well, this is to all the panel as well. Do you think there's a revolving door between politics and journalism? How does that A affect political journalism? And how can we address that? Adam, you might have some thoughts. Um, well, I mean, there definitely is. I mean, everyone can see. I mean, the, the, between the lobby and government, there is a massive re revolving door. You, there are various prominent journalists who have gone from the Daily Mail to being a spokesperson for the Prime Minister to going back to the Mail or going to the Sun and back and forth. And a lot of that is down to the, the access culture that there is, um, because something that incent a system that incentivizes getting that access also incentivizes people to then use that access in other means, which could, could be working for the government, or it could be more often uh, working for a corporate interest as a, as a lobbyist, essentially. And that's always a very, it's, it's something that isn't talked about much, but it's incredibly easy for political journalists to get hired um, for, by corporate lobbyists, essentially, you can you can literally walk out of your job one day and go into a, a, a lobbying job very very easily for a lot more money than you could ever earn in hope to earn in journalism, and that's that's I'm not sure how you solve that, but that's a really pernicious uh, influence on journalism. And it does sort of intensifies people not to 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 treat not to touch on certain stories, not to touch on certain corporate interests and not to touch on certain political parties in the way they might otherwise do if there wasn't that temptation to go through the revolving door. Mm. Ava, you spoke earlier as well, keeping with this point about this idea of like when you got into lobby journalism, suddenly there was this this pressure, like oh, I'm surrounded by all these people, like these famous politicians. Do you think that's a, that is a corrosive element? Do you think it does change mindsets and makes people more likely to be like, oh, you know, actually, I will go into corporate lobbying. I will actually, maybe I will become a politician. Is that an effect you see happening? I don't want it to sound as denigrating as I have made it sound, because I think that 
The problem with Westminster, and we haven't got enough time to go to, into all of them, but it is that you've got very young, impressionable people with the most powerful people in the country, and they're mixing in this environment that I would argue is probably too close for comfort. So if you've got someone who's 24 and they've recently graduated university and they're desperately trying to get into political journalism and then therefore desperately trying to impress their publication, they're probably not going to scrutinise the government in the way that the public would hope they mm. they would. And the glitz and the glamour of these drinks, which, by the way, the drinks are so bad. Like, I'm sorry, they're just so boring. <laughs> and But people want to go to them. And um, they, they get, you know, over overshadowed by all of that so mm. what about the older journalist adam do you think that's something that applies to them the glitz and the glamour situation or not what do you mean <laughs> as in like are they so overawed by the glitz and the glamour that they just oh i'm a corporate lobbyist now um i think there is there's a bit of a more cynical attitude amongst amongst all, all political chairs i think uh, you know when people when people talk about their colleagues that have gone into lobbying or into government it's talked about as going to the dark side um, and it's sort of light-hearted, but actually, it's it's it is pretty pernicious, and it is quite a sort of it does have quite a sort of undermining effect on on journalism and the independence of journalists. Um, and there's another big problem with the with the lobbies is these are things. I mean, we're talking about it here now, um, but it is looked at very badly to sort of criticise uh, for political journalists to criticise other political journalists. Um, and, you know, I th that's why I think we should kind of not focus too much on criticising individual journalists. It's the, it's the system. And there are many, many incredibly talented political journalists. You know, if it wasn't for the political journalists, we wouldn't, we'd still have Boris Johnson as prime minister. Uh, we wouldn't have exposed Partygate and lots of other scandals. So there are political journalists doing, doing great work uh, in the UK. It's just that the, the overall system means that there are lots of stories that are getting missed and there are lots of issues that aren't getting covered in the way they should do or from the perspective, that, from as broader and representative perspective as, the, as they should be. Maurice, I saw you react to that. Do you no, it's, uh, it, it was only the, um, if it wasn't for political journalists, we, we'd still have Boris Johnson, which is absolutely true. I would probably argue if it wasn't for political journalists, we wouldn't have had him in the first place. So, so yeah. you know, I think it goes both ways. But yes, that, that's why I pulled a phrase. I actually did want to touch on this. Do you think that there is a culture of self-importance among political journalists that A, makes it even harder for this to be, as we talked about, a more representative career. It's so elitist. It's something that when you get in, it's a real club of, okay, we're focused on this, we're all in this together, this clique. How do we knock that out of it in order to make it less broken, perhaps? You'll give a better answer because I'm pretty fresh. But I think that it's probably the... Um, established way of doing things so it's like when you want to go into the gallery for example when you're at Westminster the gallery is overlooking um the commons you uh, men need to wear a tie or you know women need to you need to be dressed quite smart like I probably might get away with this outfit but probably not and it, it's just kind of that and then like afterwards going to the tea rooms and you have like spotted dick after it's just this, this kind of like these traditions that I think if you didn't go to public school, you don't understand. Like the first day I walked in in March, I started with someone else who started for a very reputable hip hop. And he said to me very casually, doesn't it remind you of school? And I was like, no. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> I mean, no, I, mean, I, I just, just agree with you. I mean, when, when I first went to Parliament, um, it was like kind of Hogwarts gone wrong, really. And it's just this bizarre, very... 
And for lots of people, uh, people who have grown up in boarding schools and, uh, and all the rest of it, it probably does feel very welcoming and, and homely. But for people who didn't grow up in, in that back background and aren't aware of that, that world and that, like, it can feel very exclusionary. And it can also, I think, that environment can lead to abuse as well. I mean, it's something we haven't really touched, touched upon, but it does happen. It's not just a, a question of MPs abusing their staff. You know, abuse happens within, within journalism as well. And a lot of that is down to the kind of secretive, secretive nature of the whole parliamentary Westminster system. And that is embodied in political journalism as well, uh, something we, else we haven't talked about, which is anonymity. And anonymity is a very important part of journalism. Uh, it helps you, uh, helps whistleblowers be able to speak out and you can expose scandals and wrongdoing. But the problem with the lobby system, one of the big downsides to it, is it takes anonymity as a default. And so uh, the, the assumption is always that everything that is said to a journalist is said anonym uh, anonymously, unless said otherwise. And that, that can be helpful in exposing certain things. But it can also lead to abuse uh, of that anonymity, where MPs and other people in power can, can know that they can use that anonymity to smear their opponents, to criticise their rivals. And a lot of the stuff that is kind of dressed up as gossip is actually that. And sometimes things that are completely untrue make their way into the paper because not only uh, are journalists not able to expose the fact that it's untrue and who has made the untrue statement, but there's actually an incentive for journalists not to expose that and to go along with it because you, you get a colourful you know, quote in, in your copy. And so I think that, that whole sort of anonymous system, it's sort of part of the secrecy of, of Westminster, it's part of what's bad about political journalism. And it also is part of what leads to abuse because people feel that they can't speak up because there's this culture of, of secrecy uh, throughout the whole system and throughout Parliament and Westminster. Got one more question then I'm going to throw it to the audience for just a few questions, if anyone has them, so start thinking now. Um, why is it that some publications like Private Eye, which are run by, I would say, the counterparts of those in Westminster, are able to report on political scandals months and months and months before journalists pick it up? Or is, is that because they're too scared to? Do they not have the access? What is it about those publications that mean they can report those things, whereas political journalists are staring clear until it becomes consensus that is out there? Does anyone have any thoughts? Yeah, so I mean, I think it's, I mean, it goes back to what we've been talking about all along, which is access. And there are stories that people in Westminster are aware of and don't cover or don't get to the bottom of because it's not in their interests as lobby journalists who rely on access to senior figures in power to expose those stories. And that's why often a lot of the best journalism that comes out doesn't come out from the lobby team. I and mean, there are exceptions, there are some uh, great stories that come out of the lobby. But I, I would say more great stories come out of the investigative teams, uh, freelance uh, reporters, people that don't have that kind of institutional reliance on, on having day-to-day -day access that you need to have in order to succeed in, in lobby. Mm. Okay, audience questions. Does anyone have a question? If so, put your hand up. Okay, thank you very much, panel. That was really interesting. Um, my question, I guess, kind of is a weaving thread throughout this discussion and it's about democracy. So I guess the kind of smug relationship between politicians and journalists, does that, does that undermine the scrutiny 
of those politicians, which I guess you've already touched upon, but also alongside that, that kind of obsession with the interpersonal politics of Westminster, does that disillusion the general population and thwart that kind of empowerment that is so important to democracy? Um, and can we see that in any evidence of how our democracy functions today? This just makes me think of something that happened last week. So after, as I told you about the Conservatives telling us we weren't allowed to go to their conference or whatever, and basically I went up to a Tory MP who normally is one of my main sources that I normally speak to all the time. And I have changed my lobby pass so it now is on a Joe strap. It's got branding all over it. And I went over to him and he was kind of, he looked really fearful and he was like, whoa, 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 don't, don't come over here wearing that. And I kind of like went away from it being like just a little bit hurt on a, on a personal level, just a natural human response was to be a bit like, oh, this person who's my friend now doesn't want to talk to me. I had to go home and think about that and think, is it my job to be friends with these people or is it my job to scrutinise with them? And getting that balance right, I think, is is really difficult. And I'm, I'm very lucky because I have I work in a group of four people. There are three others in the team and they are incredibly supportive and we make really good content, like just like flat out. Sorry, we do. And it, it, it's not dependent on whether I speak to these politicians necessarily or not. So I don't have those obligations that maybe other political journalists do. But yeah, that fine line, I haven't worked it out yet, but perhaps Adam has. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, the only thing I would add is that, you know, there are definitely cases where journalists become, where they feel like they're sort of part of the gang. You know, the, 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 it goes. I mean, there are journalists who are very successfully negotiate that line, and are able to say, "Yes, I'm close to the government, but I will use that access to expose wrongdoing if and where, where I can, and maybe limits to that." But there are people who sort of effectively become converted and see themselves as a sort of outrider for the government themselves, and become very derisory towards people who are outside of that circle. And I think that's that's where lobby journalism can become quite, uh, I mean, I think that's, that's not by far not the majority of lobby journalists, but there are certainly are examples that people could think of where that is the case. Yeah, Maurice, as a political journalist, not just a lobby journalist, because it is political journalism, is why I really want to focus on why we always go back to lobby journalism when we talk about political journalism, who said that at the start, you felt like you were never including that gang. How do you feel about that? Um, yeah, it's, it's incredibly close. So even, like I said, at the, at the Voice, we applied for lobby passes and no chance that we were going to get one back then. Maybe things would be different now. Um, but my cohort at City, you know, the journalists who qualified, who, who graduated when I did, a number of them have gone on to be very senior political journalists. And I've gone to one of their sort of engagement parties and there's been two front bench you know, MPs sitting around the table. It's like, they're, they're, they're so close. Uh, and and um, But I, I, I think that they're close because that's how the job works. They have to be that close to get all the info. But the, the, the sort of, I don't know, the, the border between their job and their mates and their this is, is really washed up and murky. And I, I don't think you can do the job properly in, in that, if you're that embedded. I'm going to take another audience question in a second. But is it that we need a more pluralistic media so that, you know, these mainstream outlets, they're not going to change how they operate. But we need alternatives that are properly funded that will be reporting in a different way. I think that's happening. I think that um, a really good example to look at is Reach and the demise of Reach. So Reach own 
So the biggest regional publisher. Yes. So that they have like, you know, like the Somerset Live, Bristol Post, all of, you know, they own loads of publications. And a lot of these um, regional journalists, a few are really good friends of mine who I went to Sussex with, are really struggling at the moment because they're not allowed to report on local democracy. They have to report on things like what time is the X Factor on this evening because they know it's going to get a lot of views and essentially pay for that website to maintain itself. I can't remember what point I was making. Oh, yeah. So um, that is big establishment media in my head, reach. I think alternative publications now have this opportunity where you're on a level playing field. So I would quite um, arrogantly, I normally say, I'd say that Joe's biggest competitors, Navara, obviously. You have to say that. No, but, you know, they are, you know, we have a quiet little... the biggest competitors for us are Sky, Telegraph, The Times, BBC, because normally our videos do tenfold what they do. S- social media is such a level playing field. And I think it just like when, when we can get to a point where we're funding smaller journalism projects, I think you'll see a big difference. I think we're getting there already. But is it is it that the demise of reach? Is that going to lead to more funding of smaller projects because I feel like that's going to lead to just a lot of unemployed journalists. No, of course, of course. <laughs> but I mean, it would be, I mean, I'd love to see, you know, like Navarra or other organisations like that start to have their own regional support. Uh, so would we donate to Navarra? But, you know, I think also it's to do with social media strategy. I've worked with so many social media strategists over the years who genuinely have no clue how to operate it. And that is why a lot of publications are now tanking. So I'm, I'm kind of now thinking like, as we get a bit further up, are we going to be able to actually pull this off and make publications profitable? Maurice, I saw you reaching for the mic. Did you have something you wanted to add to that? Um, I, I agree that the, the media sort of outlook and environment has totally changed. Things like Navarra. I mean, I remember when you guys were starting, I was involved in um, Media Diversified, which was about uh, getting black and eight Asian journalists uh, access because they weren't getting any. And even in, in our lifetime and seeing Navara um, grow that the opportunities massively change and that's that's great and that's brilliant I, I hope that that's what to be honest puts pressure on the big establishment media to because it will be obvious that they're not doing the job if Joe and Navara and Byline are doing stuff that, that people are like actually why aren't we seeing this story in the Guardian the Times or whatever then they'll either change or, or die and I, hopefully that's the way but we still do really fall short when it comes to actually diversifying our political workforce and correspondence and that is something that really needs to be worked upon does anyone else have a question from the audience i saw hands ed from joe i believe just a disclaimer um i have a vested interest in that i suppose in this question but maurice kind of touched on it there's a conflict between alternative media like joe and navara and the more uh, traditional beasts like sky news bbc etc do you think the model of lobby journalism survives that conflict with uh, and this, I, I kind of hesitate to say this with, uh, with you guys here. I kind of hope it doesn't. I mean, I hope you guys carry on thriving and whatever. But I hope that the whole concept of lobby journalism dies. I don't know what. I don't know how you fix it because there is an issue. You can't just give everyone access because there's security and all that sort of stuff. But how there must be a better way of 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 giving access to the public about what's going on in Parliament. I think uh, sort of filtering it through a handful of picked people even if they're good people is, is 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 problematic yeah i mean obviously i'm a lobby journalist been a lobby journalist for uh, 10 years or so it is in my interest for the system to remain as it is but i don't actually believe that it should and i think it should be opened up um 
I don't think it actually needs that radical uh, reform. I think simply allowing anyone who is an accredited journalist with the NUJ to gain access to Parliament and talk to MPs and to gain gain access to lobby briefings would, would do make a massive difference. And also think that those lobby briefings they have been opened up a lot. As I say, when the when the lobby system was first, even that lo- not that long, long ago, um, lobby system. If you're a lobby journalist, you couldn't even admit that you were a lobby journalist. It was literally a secret society. Uh, briefings you couldn't report what was said in those briefings. That's changed in recent decades. It's now people tweet what happened in the in lobby briefings, but it's still not that open. There was an attempt by. Johnson's administration under uh, Dominic Cummings at the time to televise lobby briefings. I mean, again, I think that probably wouldn't have been a bad thing, but I think at the very least, there should be a transcript of what happens in the briefings. And I do think opening up the system to allow all journalists who have been accredited um, to come in and talk to people and to go to briefings and to understand how Parliament works, I think would radically sort of change and improve the whole political landscape. Because at the moment, there is this vested interest of a small uh, a group of mostly establishment uh, and established media um, and maintaining a sort of cartel in Westminster. And it has improved a lot. There are publications like Joe and, uh, and Byline Times that have, have joined, but it's still got a long way to go before it's representative of, of the country and, and media as a whole. We've got time for one more audience question. Does anyone have a question? Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been a great show tonight. Um, I think it's sort of a follow-on question um, in the sense of how can we make you know, media and reporting sort of more democratic. We have, you know, organisations and individual and independent journalists like Navara and Byline. Um, what else could we do to, you know, represent the voice of people in a bigger sense? Put the money where the mouth is is the only answer, I think. Anyone else? I think, um, I think the big barrier that I can think of is getting your degree, your master's to go into journalism and the, the fact that you have to freelance at a lot of publications or a lot of outlets before you'll get hired, I just think on a, on a general affordability level, it's really difficult to get into. And I don't even know, I don't even know how you sort that out because like, something like the City Programme, I would not even... Or I wouldn't think to apply for a fund or a bursary for for it. I don't think I think it's very difficult to incentivize people to do it because it just seems so out of reach. I think that we. I, I think if I was going to give any advice, which is not the question, but I will just say any advice. I think go into copywriting or go into producing as just baseline. That is so much better than just freelancing on your own. I think we should, just to come in on this, I think we should be taking away journalistic training from universities. I think it should be going back into newsrooms and there should be funding, whether that is in these independent places, for these young journalists to start learning on the job straight out of school. You have these training programmes. You don't have to have qualifications in order to do it. And there needs to be these regional networks out. But that's only going to happen with, unfortunately, I think members-led cooperative newsrooms because these big newsrooms are just not investing in it because they don't think they can spare the pennies even if they can anyone else want to pick up or not yeah i i i kind of agree with that i think that that not not only are they not investing it there used to be lots of sort of local uh, um newspaper sort of training schemes i, I seem to remember when, when i was coming up um but but for the big publications i guess it's not just that they're not Invest, they know they can pick up those journeys. So, so go and do your stuff elsewhere and then we'll just get you anyway. So why do they need the trains? It's, so I, um, I think it's all very well saying, yeah, we need to have these routes and we need to 
if the money's not there, I, I don't, I don't see how it works. I, I'm not, you know, I've never cracked it. I've been sort of feel, feel like I've been a journalist forever and never really earned any money. So I, I don't, I don't know what the, how you get around it. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is down to to money, and um, journalism and local journalism has been starved of money because of because of the internet and because of people's uh, demands have changed, and it hasn't it hasn't kept up with it. I think the best thing people could do to improve it is to support independent outlets, subscribe, donate, you know, do, and find alternative models. Because I think that you know. Joe do a great job and reach a large audience, and that's that's all great. But it, the 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 model of relying on advertising is kind of a, a sort of model of diminishing returns. I know from my my time at Insider is you're always pushed to to get more and more and more traffic, and journalism inevitably suffers as a result. And the only way to get around that is to support independent news news outlets that aren't reliant on that model and have alternative funding. And that involves people supporting independent outlets like Navara, like uh, like Bana. Even if you don't if you're not actually donating to some to a publication, if you go and watch a video on a specific site and you watch an advert, you have actually donated because you have actually you, you've given them money. They're getting money off that advertising is every time you watch. So yeah, choose carefully which outlets you watch your choose carefully on. which adverts you watch everybody so we've got to do a final audience poll now after listening to our amazing panel who thinks that political journalism in britain is broken put your hands up pulls up who thinks it's not broken yes thank you ed and who thinks it's broken but salvageable we've got some optimists in the house Okay, we also polled our live chat on YouTube and 95% of them watching said, yes, political journalism is broken. We are going to wrap it up there. Um, the World Transformed continues until Tuesday, so do enjoy the rest of the festival. And for now, thank you to all those who've tuned in on YouTube and also to our studio audience. And a big thank you to all our guests. Can we get a round of applause for them, please? <laughs>